Our sermon text today is Matthew 5, verses 1 to 4. Now when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside, and he sat down. His disciples came to him, and he began to teach them. He said, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Let's pray. God, thank you for bringing us here together today. Thank you for your word. Thank you for music. Um, thank you for fellowship and like-minded believers who have something in common um, that we can walk together with. And I pray that you would quiet our hearts this morning. You would help us to hear um, your truth, that you would give Alan grace to deliver um, your word as you intend it, and that we would just put aside distractions and you would help us to grow into um, this identity of being kingdom people, to look more and more like you as you define it every single day. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, we're, um, we're continuing the series that we started last week looking at Jesus' uh, Sermon on the Mount. Um, and, and as we said, these are some of the most um, familiar words that you're going to find anywhere in, uh, in the Bible. And yet I think they're quite often misunderstood uh, because contrary to what we often think, these are, these are not merely poetic words for hurting people. Uh, nor are they merely a picture of the Christian life that we're all working to attain, that we're striving to get there. But they're actually descriptions of what the citizens of Jesus' kingdom already look like, what they already act like. In other words, these are the, the non-negotiable characteristics of what it means to be citizens, to be members of the kingdom of God. And, and of course, what Jesus is doing in the sermon is he's, He's contrasting it with uh, the religious culture of his day. He's contrasting um, his kingdom with the earthly kingdom that uh, religion, e even a religion that was based on the one true God, was so badly misunderstanding. And as we said last week, Jesus starts with the logical beginning, the foundation for his kingdom, that his people must possess an utter poverty of spirit. And what we said that means is that his kingdom citizens recognize their utter neediness. That there's, there's nothing that they can bring to the table to present to God that God would find worthy. There, there's no amount of sincerity, no amount of sorrow or penance, no amount of religious duty or devotion. Instead, the only thing that we can bring to the table is our need. As we keep quoting from Dr. John Gerstner, he says, all you need is need. All you need is nothing, but most people don't have it. But Jesus says that citizens of my kingdom do. And that's the only qualification for being a citizen of his kingdom. You need utter need. And you come to Jesus to meet that need. And that's it. That is Christianity. And of course, that stood in complete opposition to the religious traditions of, of his day where being a good citizen of that earthly kingdom meant, you know, just be a good person. You know, get your act together, follow the laws, uh, generate a host of good works that you can present back to God to make you more worthy and more acceptable, which of course is not much different than it is in our day because that's how a lot of religion tends to work. 
But Jesus says, not in my kingdom. That's not the way it works. Now, today, Jesus moves us into the next logical characteristic of his kingdom people, and he says that they mourn and therefore are comforted. And, you know, just like last week, Jesus is not talking about uh, physical mourners. He's he's not talking about uh, emotional mourners. He's not talking about whiny and feeble people. He's talking about spiritual mourners. Now, what's Jesus getting at here? Uh, Spiritual mourning, it's not a very good topic for a sermon. It sounds a bit morose, as if, you know, Christians are to be going around saying, you know, woe is me, Um, hit me again, right? I deserve it, I'm so awful. Uh, But that's not what he's saying. Nor is he merely saying that, hey, guys, I am a comforter for people who happen to be in mourning. I don't think that's what he's saying either. Essentially, well, let me, let me just set this in our modern context, maybe to understand a bit better what he's after. I think it's very popular in churches today to talk a lot about love, to talk about forgiveness, to talk about hope, to talk about acceptance and celebration and um, you know, victory over sins. And, and, and of course, we should be talking about all those things. But you see, what Jesus is getting at here is that unless that love and that forgiveness and that acceptance flows out of a recognition of our genuine need, unless it flows out of a sense of our utter hopelessness and helplessness, out of our poverty of spirit, it's merely a religious covering. It's a temporary religious distraction. It's our weekly God fix to give us a boost for our week ahead. But you see, Jesus here tells us that we cannot truly be happy unless we acknowledge just how screwed up we actually are. And so Jesus is taking us here into an awareness. He's talking about an an acknowledgement of the depth of our sinfulness, our our brokenness, and a mourning spirit that grieves over this sin. And, And I think what's fascinating about this particular verse is, you know, you would think that a sermon about sin, about need, about hopelessness, would lead you to to despair and woe is me. But what does Jesus say here? He says, these are the only happy people that actually exist. Because the word blessed is also the word for happy. It could be translated either way. And he says, the truly happy people are those who understand the depth of their sin, who mourn over their sin. Uh, As Jack Miller, the founder of the mission organization I served in for a while, was noted for saying, he says, cheer up, you're worse than you think. And of course, for the world, I mean, this is utter nonsense. Nobody who spends any time looking at their brokenness and their hopelessness could ever be happy. I mean, that's the surest path to depression and misery. And and yet Jesus says, this is the only way to be happy. Now, how? And of course, I mean, just think about the alternatives for a moment. Jesus actually critiques the primary alternatives in Luke's parallel to this passage in Luke chapter 6, where he says, Blessed are you who weep now, for you will laugh. Woe to you who laugh now, for you will mourn and weep. And what he's saying is if, if you just ignore your brokenness and your pain today and try to maybe party your way through it, you know, eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow we die, I mean, sure, you're going to be happy for brief moments along the way, but it's going to fade rather quickly. And you'll have to come back and drink from that same well again and again and again. 
And in fact, we all understand that the tolerance effect of sin means that each time that you come back to drink, you're going to need more than you needed the last time to get the same level of happiness until eventually it consumes you and it kills you. I mean, that's the nature of how sin works. That's how addictions work because that's the way the human heart is. And see, Jesus is not saying here, rejoice that your life sucks. <laughs> Be happy when everything is falling apart. See, again, he's not talking about physical or emotional mourning over your life. He's talking about a spiritual mourning over your sin. You're called to mourn in spirit. And these people, Jesus says, and these people alone are truly happy. And listen, the church as a whole has done a pretty crappy job of emulating this beatitude here because let's face it, this is not a very savvy marketing strategy. A church full of spiritual mourners. I mean, we, no, we want happy churches. We want uplifting music and, and positive reinforcement. And we want healing and chains falling away and victory and joy. But I wonder how much of that strategy is just a religious version of the same thing a way to mask our problems with temporary religious experiences that might cover over my problems for an hour on Sunday mornings, but it's not going to last Monday through Saturday. And you're going to need to come back and get another spiritual fix next Sunday. Listen, what, what Jesus is saying here is that when you fail to acknowledge and understand the depth of your sin, you will settle for merely shallow ways of trying to distract yourself with external forms of happiness, right? In other words, let me put it this way. When your problems are bad, because we all have bad problems, right? But they're manageable, you don't need a savior. You need advice, you need motivation, you need encouragement, you need teaching. See, Jesus is as helper, Jesus as motivator, Jesus as, as an encourager, Jesus as a teacher of truth. You know, we love all that stuff. And then, of course, what that does is it still leaves a little bit of a crack in the door open for you to be able to fill in the edges of your life uh, with all the lies that your heart is telling you will, bring, real, will really bring life. You know, repent and, and of your sins and believe in Jesus and the cross. That's important. It's critical. Go ahead. You should do that. But where it fails to fully cover over the pain in your heart there's a few glasses of alcohol. There's sex and shopping. There's pursuing that new house or that project that's going to fill you up. And what Jesus is saying here is that kind of stuff doesn't work in my kingdom. Because citizens of my kingdom have an utter poverty of spirit that leads them to mourn over their sin. Rather than trying to find ways to fix it or cover it over or distract themselves from it. <clears throat> because let's, let's be honest, most of us, if we're honest, tend to view our problems as being out there in the world, right? It, it's our circumstances and we need to catch a break. Or, or it's those people and we need to just get them out of our way. Because all of our real problems are caused by things out there, things outside of ourselves. And so therefore the natural solution to fix or to mask those problems is the world strategy that Jesus critiques in Luke 6. You turn to sex, you turn to shopping, you turn to financial success, you turn to power grabbing, you turn to projects that will fill you up, which actually leaves us empty and needing more and more and more. And, and when that doesn't work, people will often turn to spiritual solutions. 
It's a spiritual version of the same thing that is often equally shallow and equally incapable of bringing any lasting happiness. You know, just boost me up with a really good sermon or powerful music to motivate me. Or maybe it's equally incapable sister in religion that is beating ourselves up with enough misery that we can perform the penance of working off the guilt and the shame of our brokenness. But you see, the one thing that Jesus says we desperately need, in fact, the only thing that actually works is to be gripped under the heavy weight of our sin and to be drawn in conviction to repentance. See, deep conviction drives you to Jesus and partial conviction of sin leaves the door open to be able to pursue other things in addition to Jesus. <clears throat> Martin Lloyd-Jones, um, a, a doctor who turned preacher after World War II in London, uh, and speaking to an audience there in London in the 1950s, he said this, uh, there is not real deep conviction of sin as once was the case. And on the other hand, there is this superficial conception of joy and happiness, which is very different from that which we find in the New Testament. Thus, the defective doctrine of sin and the shallow idea of joy working together of necessity produce a superficial kind of person and a very inadequate kind of Christian life. Because you see, unless we are gripped by the depth of our need, and unless we are overwhelmed by the way that Jesus actually comes and meets that need, our lives are gonna be shallow and superficial and certainly not very attractive to the struggling world around us. You see, just like we said last week, you have to be poor in spirit before you can be filled with God's presence. So here, a deep conviction of sin and our utter brokenness has to come before any real joy can sink in. See, we, I mean, we often think that deep Christian joy comes from, from living right or from obeying better or, or being more serious about God or dedicated this time. And so we beat ourselves up and we pressure ourselves up with maybe needing to believe more, to, to obey more consistently, to, to do more good things. When in reality, Jesus is calling here to stop trying to be better, to fix ourselves and acknowledge just how screwed up we actually are, how needy we are and how helpless we are. And then his grace comes in and cheers us up. Then his forgiveness leads to a longing to obey more, which is the hunger and thirst for righteousness that we'll get to in a few weeks. But you see, there's, there's an order to it. There's a logical order to it. I mean, let me, let me put it to you this way. Imagine I came to you and offered to pay your internet bill for you this month. You know, you say, well, gee, thanks, you know, appreciate it. It's, you know, it's not necessary, but it's nice, you know, thanks. But what if I offered to pay off your mortgage? You see, that, that gee, thanks would turn into overwhelming joy and thankfulness especially if you just started it and you're paying 5% interest, right? Because listen, the, the, the amount of acknowledged debt has a direct correlation to the amount of joy that you have when it's paid in full. And we, when we look at our lives and, and we see our needs as, well, sure, I'm a sinner and I've got need, everybody does, and I, and I need Jesus, but I also could use a bit more money if I'm really gonna be happy or I need better circumstances or I need more opportunities, or maybe fewer frustrating people in my life, then Jesus becomes a nice helper. Jesus becomes a vitamin supplement to boost us in areas where we feel weak. But our real happiness still comes from getting the things that we think that we want. 
And for most religious people, I think what we do is we give up trying to find happiness in the world and now we turn to God saying, maybe God can give me what I really want. But I'm still after what I really want. I'm just turning to a different power source because I can't do it. Maybe he can. And listen, what Jesus is saying here is that when we see our utter and complete need spiritually before God, and when we see how he meets that need perfectly through Jesus, the joy is unbounded. Because you simply cannot have real joy apart from deep conviction of sin. God always turns our mourning into dancing. All right? He never turns our whining and pining about how our lives ought to be going into dancing. And I'm afraid that far too often, that's what we're looking for God to provide. God, fix my problems. God, change my circumstances. God, eliminate these obstacles. That's what's going to bring me joy. And it's a lie. Any joy that comes apart from conviction of sin is fleeting. And it's not the true happiness that Jesus is talking about here. So let's ask the next question then. What does it mean that those who mourn are the truly happy ones? I mean, how does that work? Well, let's just start by looking at Jesus. If we are, if we are truly made in his image, and if Jesus really is the first born among many brothers, then it means that our lives are gonna follow the pattern of his life, right? Well, how does scripture describe his life? God tells us to the prophet Isaiah that he was a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. I mean, notice how he wept at the tomb of Lazarus or he wept over the city of Jerusalem. See, he was deeply grieved over the brokenness that sin had caused his world. Or look at the examples of the Apostle Paul. In Romans 7, he cries out, what a wretched man I am. Who's going to deliver me from this body of death? He says, there's nothing good that lives inside of me. And all the good things that I want to do, I, I simply can't do. And all the bad things I want to stop doing, I don't seem to be able to stop. And then in the next chapter, he goes on to say, we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit groan inwardly as we await eagerly for our adoption to sonship, the redemption of our bodies. Or listen to what he says in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, that same groaning. Meanwhile, we groan longing to be clothed instead with our heavenly dwelling. Because when we are clothed, we will not be found naked. For while we are in this tent, we groan and are burdened because we do not wish to be unclothed, but to be clothed instead with our heavenly dwelling so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. See, to, to mourn over our sins fall, follows logically from being poor in spirit because to the degree that we see ourselves before the holy presence of God as being stained and hopeless and helpless with nothing to offer, we will mourn over our sin. And to the degree that you see your sins as shortcomings that can be addressed, flaws that can be worked on, you're gonna be frustrated by your sin, you're gonna be embarrassed by your sin, you're gonna be ashamed by your sin, but you will not truly grieve over it. And you will be fooled into thinking that there are other strategies out there that can fill in the edges of what feels lacking in your heart. And so we mourn. We mourn over the stupid brokenness that seems to dominate our lives, things we've said, things we've done, mistakes that we've made, people that we've hurt. And it's right to grieve over that. We should. It's awful. But not only that, I think we grieve even more that I just seem to be incapable of stopping. 
right? I, I'm addicted to these sinful ways. I, I'm a slave to sin. I mean, I, it's not so much that I just grieve over this list of my individual sins at the end of each day, as much as I grieve over the hopeless, sinful nature that grips my heart. The fact that I'm not even capable of genuine holiness. That even the good things that I do are tainted with selfishness and pride. And, and, and that deeply grieves me. See, we, it's questions like, why am I so irritable? Why am I so easily frustrated? Why do I so often feel sad and depressed? Why do people like that set me off so easily every time? Why am I so jealous or so intimidated by certain people? Why do I always need that next big project to get me going and get my blood pumping again? I hate this about myself. That is genuinely grieving over your sin. But grieving goes even deeper than that because you don't just grieve over your past sins and you don't just grieve over your inability to stop. I think you also grieve over the sins of others, the sins of the world, the sins of, of culture, you know, of the various groups in society that are jockeying for position, the culture wars between the left and the right, the wars and the conflicts going on around the globe. Uh, you, you, we mourn over politics and all the lies and the accusations of people fighting for power. I mean, it doesn't take much notice to see that our world is radically unhappy. And does all of that brokenness grieve you? Or are you drawn into the politics of let's just fight back? See, this is why Jesus mourned over Jerusalem at, and at the grave of Lazarus, saying this is not the beautiful world that I created. It, it's broken. This is not what it ought to be. This is not what I designed it to be. Sin has destroyed God's beautiful creation. And all around us, people are walking away from their only source of hope. They're, they're creating counterfeit gods that cannot save them. They're pursuing power and control that only die with them in the grave. And unless we grieve over our sins, we're believing that same lie too. Now, does all this sound a bit morbid and depressing? I think not when you really consider what are the alternatives to mourning over your sin. It's either, as Jesus said, laugh now and mourn later. You know, eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow we die. Party your way through life. Escape all of the, the pains. Just cover things up so you don't feel the sense of brokenness. Distract yourself with money and popularity and power. Or you can go to the other end of the spectrum and beat yourself up over your failings, which is not the same thing as mourning over your sins. Beating yourself up is really a modern alternative to mourning because it's really mourning over me and, and my lack of happiness. It's not mourning over my sin and how it's destroyed everything. It's mourning how I'm not capable of being more self-reliant and more strong on my own so that I get the glory. Listen, this is what Jesus is driving us to see here this morning. Are you messed up enough that you can come to Jesus for help, but you still have the edges of life that you have to fill in yourself with fun distractions or with the penance of beating yourself up? Or do you see yourself as messed up enough that only the rescue of Jesus could ever bring me what I need? See, the first is gonna lead you to manage your sins and to minimize your sins, but the second will lead you to grieve and to mourn over your sins, which will lead to joy. Now, how in the world 
can this level of grieving lead to any happiness? Well, I want you to notice how Jesus ends uh, this beatitude. He says, for they will be comforted, right? There's comfort. See, the, the alternatives, the alternative comforts out there that we have at our disposal that we can control, whether it's alcohol and shopping or the self-abuse of beating ourselves up, they can never bring any lasting comfort, right? I mean, even Southern Comfort only provides temporary comfort. It just doesn't work. But Jesus promises that he will. Now, how? Because, you see, grieving over your sin drives you to Jesus. Or as managing and distracting yourself from your sins drives you into an endless array of alternatives. And you see, when your grieving drives you to Jesus, what we find there is repentance. And at the end of repentance, there is forgiveness. We find welcome back into the heart of God. And this is our only hope. And for the person who understands their spiritual poverty, there is no alternative. You see, half-needy people, people only have a half-able Jesus to be able to rescue them. Because half-needy people tend to tell Jesus what that rescue looked like, right? Give me my dreams. Fulfill my desires. Take away my problems. I know I'm needy. I know I need your help. But I'm dictating to you what, the, what it was going to look like, right? But fully needy people throw themselves on God's mercy. And they say, I'm a kid. I don't even know what I need. I don't even know where to start. I just need help. And you see, what Jesus is saying here is that the deeper that you mourn over your sin, the greater the happiness will be over your rescue. And if you're not experiencing any joy in your daily life, you've got to ask yourself, am I truly grieving over my sins? Or am I merely grieving over my ability to get the things that I want? Or grieving over the competent person that I long to be and I just can't seem to keep up with everybody else? Because listen, you can be a genuine Christian whose debt has been paid in full and still not be able to enjoy the full benefits of that rescue because you're not going deep enough. You see surface sins, you see plaguing problems, but you don't admit that those problems are spiritual instead of, I need to get this, I need to fix that, right? And you're not grieving over the brokenness of your un that the, your unbelief has caused. I mean, Jack Miller was right, cheer up, you're far worse than you think. True happiness is on the other side of deep repentance because your sin's debt has been paid in full. You have everything that you need for life and godliness, Peter tells us. It is finished. It's done. And listen, this is not just the way that conversion works initially. This is actually the pattern for all of the Christian life. You know, our sin constantly beats us up and constantly reminds us of what a loser we are. But you see, for the Christian, it doesn't have to drive you to despair because it can drive you over and over again back to Jesus, where there is forgiveness, which leads to the same happiness returning once again. And I think, therefore, the Christian life is one of continual mourning over sin, leading to continual repentance, leading to renewed joy and happiness. And if you keep taking the exit ramps of self-abuse or the exit ramps of grabbing at all the distracting alternatives of the world, your brokenness is never going to lead you to joy. You're just going to be frustrated all the time. But listen, this comfort isn't merely a personal comfort over the pains and struggles of your life because Jesus, I think, promises us here a comfort even greater than that because I think this is really pointing us to the 
joy that one day awaits us all. You know, Paul tells us in Romans 8 that we have the first fruits of the Spirit, but we're still groaning, right? The fight with sin is not over yet, but Paul tells us that we're still groaning over and waiting for the final healing that's yet to come. And he says in chapter 8, verse 18 in Romans, I consider that our present sufferings are not worth being uh, with comparing with the glory that we will be revealed in us. And you see, part of our comfort today is the forgiveness that Jesus offers us right now. But our, I think our primary comfort is the promise and the hope that one day sin is going to be gone forever. One day we will no longer be tainted by its effects anymore. One day it will not be able to drag us down anymore. And, and this is our hope. And listen, this is the only alternative, right? The, the only other alternatives out there is a hopeless future. Where at best, you know, watch, how does the world do it? We take turns oppressing each other. I mean, it's kind of the heart of, of Black Lives Matter, of racial quotas and race-based help going on today. You know, you were on top for a while, now it's our turn to oppress you. That's the best the world can offer. Or, you know, as Elon Musk uh, so wisely said this week, you know, part of Ukraine used to belong to Russia, why don't you give it back? But as a friend of mine who lives there said, but it also once belonged to Greece, and it also once belonged to Turkey, and it also once belonged to the Ottoman Empire. Are we just going to take turns owning the land and oppressing and beating each other up? I mean, that's how our politics work. You know, it's Democrats on top oppressing Republicans, and we're going to win the election so we can oppress and put them back under our boot. That's not the way to live life. Right? And then being caught up in worry each, each day, jockeying for position, trying to worry about uh, wars and oppression and justice and who's going to win. Listen, Christians can acknowledge the radical brokenness of the world without freaking out. We can be sober and prepared for the hard times that may be coming while being hopeful that God has got it. And in the end, we know he wins because this is our comfort. This is our happiness. Groaning and mourning are deeply compatible with joy and happiness. In fact, it's the only way to actually get there. This, I think Jesus says, is the mark of his kingdom. People who are deeply honest about our need and therefore who deeply mourn over the effects of sin in our lives and in the world, and as a result, who turn in faith to Jesus for rescue. And it's a rescue where we are free where our debt has been paid in full, where the struggle is over, in theory, but we still have to live with the effects of it. But again, the only alternative is just to distract ourselves with the wearisome burden of trying to pay off all the pain and the brokenness that we feel. This is a call to be sorrowful, but not morose. Sorrowful, but not miserable. Serious, but not solemn. Sober, but not sullen. Uh, grave, but never cold. See, the kingdom of Jesus creates people who possess a deep gravity over the brokenness of this world. It grips your heart, and yet you're warm and attractive because you're filled with hope. You know there's a way out. You know Jesus is going to win. You know there's an end in sight. Listen, what controls your attitude toward yourself today? Is it your circumstances? Is it your hopes and dreams? Or is it an honest assessment of the bottomless need of your heart that's been fully met by a loving Savior? 
The first only leads to an endless cycle of striving to get something that can never be had. The latter is the only path to genuine happiness and to deep comfort. Cheer up, you're far worse than you think. Cheer up, you're far more loved than you ever dared hope or dream. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we desperately need a rescue. We don't need help. We don't need advice. Uh, We need good news. And we thank you for the good news that Jesus has come and lived the life that we should have lived and that you've come and died the death that we deserve. And as a result, we can stand before you today holy and righteous, not because of anything we've done, but because of our brother Jesus, who has lived and died in our place and given it to us as a gift. Lord, I pray that as we come to the table now that we would be able to remember that and rejoice in that together. In Jesus' name, amen.